so glad that you're here, worshiping with us. Now, as we approach the time in the Word, it'll be, uh, I'm certain, a blessing to your heart because uh, God is faithful, right, to His people, and uh, we get another opportunity to, to sit under the influence of the Holy Spirit as we open His Word together. Uh, I, uh, I figured that you would know what this sermon's going to be about, even if you don't know uh, the passage we're looking at. And by the way, it's Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. But based on the liturgy that we've already uh, been following, you know that it's got something to do with uh, pride and humility, right? That's been kind of a, an ongoing theme here that, we, that we've been looking at this morning. The Bible talks a lot about pride and humility, and it gives us many examples of both. It, uh, for example, Moses was called the, the most humble man, or meekest man on the planet. And um, then we have the example of Abraham's humility and Nebuchadnezzar's uh, pride. And then, you know, not too long after that, we have uh, an example of pride in Abraham's life and, and humility in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And so it flip-flops even with the same individuals where God uses illustration and examples of people uh, to demonstrate his opposition to pride and his um, interest in humility for his people. We know that God opposes the proud, right? James says that, says it in a couple of places in scripture. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The problem is, is that we're all naturally prideful. Um, pride is at the root of all of our sins. If you were to trace the sins back to its root, any sin you particularly struggle with, you would discover that it's based in pride. Um, and so a good place maybe to begin here today to establish your need to be attentive in this sermon and your need for uh, the Holy Spirit to do his work in you is this. Uh, have you demonstrated pride today? Is there, is there some way that you've demonstrated pride today? Another way to ask it would be this, have you sinned today? <laughs> right, so if, if all of our sin is, is rooted in pride, then when you sin, you've demonstrated pride. Just have to spend a little time tracing it back to that, that foundational place. The reason we get impatient, for example, uh, if you were impatient today, you know, getting all your kids in the car or waiting on your wife to do what she does, you know, um, before she goes into public. Um, the, the reason we get impatient as individuals is because of pride. We, we think that we shouldn't have to wait on anything or anyone because our time, after all, is pretty important, isn't it? I mean, we... We believe that. The reason we get angry um, or say things that we shouldn't is because we think that we've been mistreated. And so we feel like we have a right to correct the circumstances that we're in. We've been mistreated after all, and I, <laughs> I am who I am, right? I don't deserve to be mistreated, right? We deserve better than that, we are told. 
All the temptation we face is based upon self-gratification. It wouldn't be temptation otherwise. And self-gratification is based in pride, right? Um, it, it is actually an expression of pride and self-love, this idea of self-gratification. And Satan knows all about this problem that we have of pride, the, the root of our sin. And, of course, he knew about this with Adam and Eve. Their, their fall into sin was based on pride. Think about the sin that, that Adam and Eve committed and how they got there, how Satan got them there. Do you remember the question that, that Satan asked Eve? Right? He, he, he didn't uh, tempt her with a juicy piece of fruit as if that was so attractive. He, they had plenty to eat in the garden and, and good fruit to boot. So it wasn't the, 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 the wonder of this piece of fruit. It was the suggestion from Satan that they would be uh, exposed to more knowledge if they would just eat the fruit. And so Eve and Adam embraced the thought that maybe God was withholding things from them and they deserved to know more, to be more in the loop on things. And so they agreed to pursue Satan's temptation and they fell and here we are, you know, all these years later, repeating this problem. So Satan used this, this idea of, of pride as a wedge um, to, to take them down, to, to separate them from God. Um, and of course, this is the very thing that took Satan down. We heard this earlier in the service today. Why? You remember Satan. He was, he was one of God's premier creations. He was the, the, the um, supreme angel, angelic being that God created, the most beautiful, the most powerful. Um, and it went to his head, didn't it? He thought he deserved a better place, more exaltation. And so um, God had to throw him out because of his pride. So Pride originated with Satan in ages past, uh, and it continues into the human race via our first parents, Adam and Eve. And I think that, that this particular passage that we're going to be looking at is going to be helpful for all of us who struggle with pride um, and lack humility. And I know that's probably a very small percentage of you, but uh, in case this fits the bill, this, I think, could be used by God to be helpful. God's requirement of his people is what? From Micah 6 8. He requires us humility, doesn't he? He requires us to be humble people. Um, and so this is a challenge. Our, our passage today teaches us about the importance of humility and, and, the, and its primary role in greatness. So if you'll turn in your Bible with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, you'll, you'll see the great importance of humility and its primary role in our greatness. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, I'm not too interested in being great. And I, I want to maybe challenge that thought a little bit. And, 
and you'll see here in a moment that I, I think you are concerned about being great. Um, and I hope you'll see that clearly. But <clears throat> typically, don't we, we prefer ourselves um, and promote ourselves over others? Isn't that common to us, to the world? Maybe it's common to them, and we can see it in them. Um, because we think we're naturally better than those around us, we believe that we should be catered to, preferred, honored, respected, served. Let's see how this came up in the ministry of Jesus. Verse 35 through 45 of chapter 10 says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great of great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What a wonderful passage this is, and clear passage. I, I hope to, to uh, encourage you with this, to uh, guide you with the words of Christ here in our time together this morning. And so to begin with, let's go back to a, a fundamental argument I'm making here is that we all are interested uh, in greatness. It attracts us in some way or another, uh, even if we won't admit it. This passage gives, gives us two paths to greatness, uh, the world's path via self-promotion or God's path via self-denial. So there's two ways to become great. Uh, in this existence we live in. One is to pursue the world's path to greatness by promoting ourselves like we see James and John doing here, or God's path of self-denial like we see Jesus exemplifying. Okay? Self-promotion and prideful self-appraisal are common to everyone. <clears throat> you may say, well, you know, I don't think I promote myself or am prideful in my self-appraisal? If that's your opinion, I would, I would have to add this to our conversation. Self-delusion is also very common. Okay, so if you're sitting here thinking, you know, I don't struggle with pride, I'm not really interested in greatness, then I would say we need to back up one notch lower and consider whether or not you're deluded. <laughs> Because this is reality. This is why it's in the scripture. It's why it's all over scripture. The struggle with pride that we all have. This, this pursuit of greatness. This pursuit of, um, you know, esteem. 
So let's look first at the first path that Jesus lays out here for us in this story, the world's path to greatness. James and John's relationship with Jesus was a privileged one, wasn't it? And it revealed an, it revealed an attitude of superiority, especially among the other disciples. Uh, they, had, they had argued many times, these 12, about who was the greatest among them. Remember just a few chapters ago, they were arguing about this very thing, uh, debating with one another who was actually the greatest. Listen, this was the one that we're hearing about right now in Mark 10, was the second of three recorded, and who knows how many others there were that weren't recorded. So the first one was back in Mark 8. The second argument here about who's the greatest is here in Mark 10. The next one is in Mark 12, up, <laughs> which is up to the very moment of Jesus' crucifixion. They were arguing about the very same thing. Who's the greatest amongst us here? I shouldn't have to wash your feet. I'm, I'm more important than you are. You need to be washing my feet is kind of what we see here in this. So pride revealed itself in their pursuit of self-promotion. And I want you to notice here in the passage how it is revealed. All right, first of all, we see it revealed in the way they demonstrated their selfish ambition. James and, and John came up to Jesus and asked for this special favor, to be esteemed, to be valued, to be promoted above everybody else. In this story, of course, these, these two brothers presumed um, that they were the greatest in the group of 12 because they were part of Jesus's quote-unquote inner circle, right? Um, they, along with Peter, were the only ones invited to observe the transfiguration. And so after the transfiguration, can you imagine the arguments that they presented to their fellow 12? Uh, okay, Nathaniel, I can't remember seeing you at the transfiguration. Uh, what, what was that all about? How come you weren't there? Can you imagine seeing that? I can. And then again, for some reason, Jesus only invited Peter, James, and John when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And so you can imagine how these two brothers, having been included in the inner circle, would use this kind of argumentation to prove that they were more important than the rest of the twelve. They probably struggled with convincing Peter of these things, but uh, nonetheless, they certainly claimed what they claimed, asked what they asked here in the text we're in today. And by the way, the privilege, this inner circle privilege that they experienced didn't create the monster of pride that was in them. It revealed it. It was already there. <laughs> they were already prideful guys. It, this, this circumstance just revealed it. And it's the same with us, isn't it? Circumstances aren't to blame for our pride. You know, if I wasn't raised in such a rich home, I wouldn't be so, no, you would be. We all would be. We don't need special circumstances to become something that we ought not to be, right? It happens naturally to us. We are prideful because we're related to Adam and Eve. We're not prideful be because of the way you were raised or or the things that you went to school for, or the money you make, no. That just gives opportunity for the pride to be revealed. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So circumstances simply are the things that God uses to expose our heart with the sins that we struggle with. Listen to this, I think you'll find this interesting. According to Matthew's account of this same story, uh, James and John brought their mom 
to this conversation. <laughs> there you go. Uh, James and John bring mommy along to solidify the argument that they're quite a bit better than the rest of the 12. And so they deserve this, this little uh, benefit. Here's, here's the interesting part. Well, that's actually fairly interesting to me, but uh, here's a more interesting part. By process of elimination, we can discover who the mom was, who James and John's mom actually was. Guess who it turns out to be? Jesus' mom's sister. James and John were, were cousins with Jesus. And so they ask mom, the sister of Jesus' mom, to come along to give weight to their request. So what, what they were doing was trying to leverage their biological relationship to get Jesus to do something, trying to manipulate Jesus, in other words. I didn't want to, dis, didn't want to disappoint aunt so-and-so, whom I'm sure he respected. This is kind of like name-dropping to the nth degree. Um, it's kind of what we find ourselves doing in order to gain favor or to impress people that we're interacting with. It's another demonstration of the struggle that we all have with pride, isn't it? The disciples had watched and listened to Jesus for three years now. This is three years in. Uh, they were like a week away from the crucifixion. So three years these guys had been poured into by Jesus. They had seen his humility on numerous occasions. They had heard him preach and teach on the dangers of pride and God's desire for humility in his people. But somehow they missed it. And they proved it here in this little scenario. They tried to manipulate Jesus, deceive the other disciples into being exalted. They were self-promoting. They were self-exalting demonstrating selfish ambitions. What's so hard for us to get our minds around is that after spending these three years with the Son of God being discipled by Jesus, you would think that they would have had at least some basic humility, right? I mean, when you're fully taught, you're like your teacher, Jesus said himself. And here these guys are like acting like literally toddlers or at best junior high girls. Right? Nothing against junior high girls. I love them. But, uh, but once we look in the mirror, our confusion disappears, doesn't it? <laughs> once we actually take an honest look at ourselves, we see James and John in the mirror, don't we? Yeah. Battling pride is, is the chief battle in our sanctification. If you can conquer pride... You are like Jesus. It is the chief battle in our sanctification, becoming like him. So let's look at how Jesus exposes this arrogance, this prideful pursuit of position. He does so in verses 38 through 40. Um, it's pretty interesting here. He says in verse 38... You do not know what you're asking. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I would have been a fly on the wall 
back there to see exactly the tone with which these things were said and you know the the response of the disciples and the response of the other disciples you know I, I can just picture it uh, it would be fun would have been fun to be there maybe maybe uh, when we get to glory we'll have a, a video version of all this that we could watch and rewatch. oh look at Peter here in this one. Oh, you know that kind of thing um, so uh, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You think you can handle this, boys? Is what Jesus was asking. Um, he exposes their pride, their arrogance, just like he exposes ours. When's the last time your pride was exposed? Maybe I'll ask it like this, like I did earlier. When's the last time you sinned? That's the last time it was exposed. When you gave in to the temptation to be self-centered. To seek self-gratification for any reason. Jesus was saying, you don't know what you're asking. In their prideful overconfidence, they foolishly declared, I think with much flippancy, oh, we can handle anything. We're big boys. We're fishermen for after all. I mean, we can handle this kind of stuff. Uh, rewind my brain to Peter's great claim. Hey, Lord, if all these knuckleheads take off, I'm going to be here for you at the end. Remember that claim? How'd that work out? Yeah. He took off just like the rest of them. Maybe even worse. He, Peter's uh, betrayal is more famous than anybody's. But you know what? All of them took off, not just Peter, including James and John. Got a little hot in the kitchen and they took off. So they weren't actually able and ready for this baptism, for this cup that Jesus was describing. Jesus told them that they would indeed drink of the cup here in verse 40. He says, oh, you'll drink of the cup. They were going to drink of the cup. They would be baptized with Jesus' sufferings. But only God the Father is the one who assigns places of honor, right, is what Jesus said. James, if you know your church history, even if you know Acts, uh, James was martyred by King, King Agrippa um, very early in the life of the church by sword in Jerusalem. Uh, John was, so James was basically the, besides Stephen, but Stephen wasn't an apostle. James was the first apostle martyred. And John, his brother, these two guys were the bookends of the martyrs of the apostles. James started it. John ended it. He, he died in, in uh, exclusion. But both James and John and all the apostles drank the cup of suffering that Jesus was referring to. And in studying this, I was thinking about the, the prediction that James and John would suffer um, the way Jesus suffered. And it dawned on me, it made me wonder whether or not all of Jesus' disciples will drink of the cup including us in this room. Something we're thinking about. Now let's look at the fallout that takes place when people start preferring themselves. It says here that the, the 12 were indignant. That word indignant is a strong word. We've come across it once before in the, in the Gospel of Mark. But being indignant is just another way of saying experiencing hostility. 
<laughs> they were very indignant towards James and John because they believed, and it was true, that James and John thought that they were better than them. And that always goes over well with everybody, doesn't it? <laughs> when someone makes you feel like they're better than them. That you're, they're better than you, rather. But besides, besides this, you know, obvious communication that James and John thought they were better than the rest of the, the disciples, I'm convinced that the rest of the disciples were indignant because James and John beat them to the punch. James and John asked the question first. They were like, why didn't we invite our moms, you know, kind of thing. But there was fallout, right? This was, <laughs> it didn't improve their relationship. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and this kind of fallout always happens when we prefer ourselves over others. Just remember the last time you had an argument with your spouse about who's more important in the marriage. Well, the kids really need a dad. You know. That never goes over well for some reason. Not sure why. Whenever you force your way, whenever you force your opinion, whether it's with your spouse or anyone else, there's fallout. And we see it here. It seems that Jesus, though, in his good shepherdly way, never seemed to miss an opportunity to teach. He, he, he jumped on this like white on rice. He, he saw an opportunity that he couldn't pass up to teach them about something that is critically important, not only to their sanctification, but, but about the health of the church, the future church that was coming. Can you imagine how long the church would have lasted if Jesus wouldn't have corrected their prideful leadership pursuits? It wouldn't have lasted very much after the ascension, right? But here in verse 42, it says he gathered them like confused sheep and began to instruct them about what true greatness was. Another thing I would have loved to have been there for. The disciples were accustomed to seeing their local leaders, and including the Roman leadership that was in Israel at the time, uh, pursuing the worldly path to greatness. This was commonplace. In fact, the, the path that God desires, the path that Jesus was teaching, was unknown to these disciples. They, they, they were used to seeing religious leaders step on each other and, and put each other down and, and make much of themselves and promote themselves um, in order to get respect, honor, and power that they desired. Um, this is required in the world's scheme of things, in the world's path. If you don't promote yourself, you're told who's going to. If you don't defend yourself, who's going to? And so we are told that we need to do so for ourselves because no one else is going to take up the mantle for us. Um, and so if you're going to step up to that next place on the ladder rung, then you need to exert yourself, promote yourself, at least till your ego is satisfied. And of course, we know that our ego is never satisfied, is it? Um, but you must be ambitious, driven by a desire for power and prestige. And Jesus' teaching here was radically different, 180 degrees different, wasn't it? 
So this takes us to God's path to greatness, our second point. And what's his path to greatness? We've already come across it once. It's self-denial, right? If you're going to follow me, you must take up your cross and what? follow me. Deny yourself. Don't promote yourself. Deny yourself. Those are opposites. As Jesus taught them about God's pathway to greatness, he contrasted the worldly path with the godly path to greatness. And counterintuitively, Jesus said that the path to greatness in God's kingdom is actually paved with humility, self-denial, and servanthood. Not with self-promotion, not with greed for power, no, the exact opposite. And you might be thinking, well, then I won't just desire greatness. But here's the thing, desiring greatness isn't the problem. Paul desired greatness. The problem isn't, isn't that you desire greatness, the, the, the goal, right, out here. It's, the problem is in which path you choose to get there. It's like money. It's not wrong to desire money. It's not wrong to have money. It's wrong if it consumes you. <laughs> That's the problem. So let me, let me try to prove to you what I just said, because I know that may not sit well with some of you. Paul spoke not uncommonly about his desire for honor, reward, and glory in his ministry. He looked forward to the day when he would receive the crown. Remember these things that he said? He, he, he said them very clearly to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.7. I can't wait for the day when I receive my honor, my reward, and the glory for being faithful. That's called seeking greatness. But on God's path to greatness, Jesus himself said in Revelation 22.12, that he's bringing rewards to those who've been faithful. Those who have been good at faithfulness. Greatness. Jesus is going to reward it. The author of Hebrews says that God rewards those who seek him earnestly or greatly. We all want to be great. Right? The question is, how are we going to get there? The world's path to greatness or God's path to greatness. Promoting self or denying self? Which one is it? Wanting to be great is not the problem. I want you to hear. So look how Jesus described the great ones. In verse 43, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. If you want to be great then you have to be the least. If you want to be respected, honored, then you have to submit yourself humbly. If you want to be at the top, you have to be at the bottom. If you want to be first, you, want to, you need to be last. He used the word servant, doulos. He used the word slave. Right, wait a minute. This is, this is a problem. Doulos, actually, slave, the, the word for slave is doulos. The word for servant is diakonos. So, and he used both words to describe the attitude, the approach to this greatness that he requires. We must be servants. We must see ourselves as slaves. So Jesus' path towards greatness requires a servant's heart. It requires a commitment to behaving as a slave to those who are around us in this building, in our life. And this can only happen if we've been transformed by grace. It doesn't come naturally to us. 
You can't get there on your own. If you pursue greatness without a transformed heart, guess which, guess which path you choose? The worldly one. All right? And that's a problem. So the only way that we can actually become great on God's path is if we've been transformed by grace, unless we've been converted by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and until we've been given a new heart, we cannot be on that path. The default path for every human is the worldly path to greatness. And so Jesus says the only way that this is going to work for you is if you're saved to a different family. And he says this in verse 43 to describe this different family. He says in verse 42 that this is how the unbelievers um, pursue greatness, is they lord it over people, they, they look for authority and power over people. That's the world's way. And then look what he says in the first sentence of verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. You're not going to get there like that. You have to be part of a different family. You are part of a different family, my twelve, Jesus was saying. Um, you'll, you'll behave differently if you're in this family. Um, it's not going to be like that amongst us. That's not how we're going to behave. Jesus said to this group of men, 12 of them, who were going to lead the world into Christianity, we're going to behave differently. But, but Christians, people in God's family are going to be different than the world every time. And that doesn't mean we, just, we don't have an occasional hiccup with our pursuit of pride or those things that pride produces. But it's, it's going to be different for us because we're in God's family. And our difference should not be because we're weird or, or socially awkward because, you know, we're Christians and we don't do that kind of stuff. You know, that, that kind of attitude that we've seen. So I, I think it's important that we see that we're not different because of the things we don't do. Like, we don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't play cards, we don't go to the movie theater because we're a Christian. Uh, let's, let's back this up a little bit. Are you a Christian because you don't do those things? No. So it's not what you don't do that gets you into the family of God. It's not what you don't do that gets you onto God's path to greatness. Those things make you different for sure, but they don't make you a Christian. The gospel is what makes us different good friends. The gospel teaches us that we no longer get our sense of self-worth or our identity from what we do or what we don't do. Uh, no, our performance never impresses God, does it? No. Our acceptance with God is only based on the merit of Jesus Christ, his son. As a result of this, we no longer have to try to impress those around us in our church, in our families. Why? Because your esteem, your self-worth is based on what God has done for you in Christ. <laughs> Not for how well you can impress your neighbors or your people in your small group or anybody else for that matter. God's not keeping score of how many times you show up to church per month or 
how many times you serve or how much you give. He's not impressed with our human efforts. That's, that's the worldly approach to greatness. And that doesn't work with God's family or with God himself. What others think of us isn't what makes us worthwhile. What, what God thinks of us is what's important. And what does he think of us? Enough to come save us? Enough to send his only son into the world whom he loved infinitely and perfectly to take on our human flesh, to die for our sin, to take our place? I think that's a lot, isn't it? It demonstrates how much he cares for us, what's, what he thinks of us. Friends, we don't have to earn God's favor. We don't have to try to earn each other's goodwill or esteem. That's not what the Christian life's about. Since God accepts us because we are in Christ, we can now do what's best for each other. Whether it's encouragement or exhortation, not fearing loss of position, not, not fearing a demotion in the stratosphere of the church. Your, your place in the church isn't based on, on any of that. Your place in the family of God is not based on your performance. It's based on what God has done. But there is an identifying mark, isn't there, of authentic Christianity? You remember what Jesus said in John 13? Right after he washed the disciples' feet, after in humility he took off his outer garments, knelt down and washed their dirty, prideful feet, you remember what he said about what's the identifying mark? Everyone will know that you are my disciples if what? You impress one another. Right. No. Yeah. If you love one another. Not if you impress one another. Not if you, you know, <laughs> check every box. No. If you love one another. That's the identifying mark. And what is it that people who love one another do for one another? They serve one another, don't they? You, 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 the people you love, you serve. You see a need and you meet it. And, you, and beyond just seeing a need and like getting, oh, surprise. No, you're looking for needs. You're looking for ways to help people. That's what you do with people you love. That's the identifying mark of those who are in God's family. These who are in God's family, truly, authentically, Give up their own rights in order to prefer others in the family of God, and hence they serve them. They, they sacrifice their time and their money and their efforts so that God's people and God's purposes can thrive in this world. True believers actually put themselves at the back of lines for the good of others. They, they park in spots that are furthest away, and in circumstances that are uncomfortable, they embrace it for the benefit of others. And this is what Paul discussed with his Philippian friends. Turn with me now to Philippians chapter 2. You heard it read earlier in the service. I'm going to refer to a few things in that great section of Scripture. One of my favorite. Look at what Paul here says to 
the Philippians. So just to keep you on track with where we are in this sermon, we're looking at God's path to greatness. And we see here that, first of all, we're, in order to be on that path, you need to be saved to a different family. Instead of the worldly family, God's family. And then secondly, I want you to see that we're actually saved to this family in order to serve. This is why you're saved. You've heard it said, saved to serve. That's exactly right. Look at what it says here in Philippians 2. Paul says this, do nothing, starting in verse 3, from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So uh, God's path to greatness requires humility. Jesus exemplifies humility. God's path to greatness requires servanthood. Jesus exemplifies servanthood. Jesus isn't the kind of leader who says, do what I say, not what I do. Right? Isn't, Jesus never says, you know, I, I can't pull that off myself, but I really expect you guys to do it. You know, like, like your high school PE teacher. They want you to do all these push-ups and pull-ups, but they can't do them. Right? They want you to run, you know, at 10 second flat 100, but they can't get there in 20. Right? It's not Jesus. Kevin, you can affirm this, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Jesus is the example of humble servanthood. And so if you possess the Holy Spirit, which is required to be saved, you aren't saved without the Holy Spirit. If you possess the Holy Spirit, then he will produce in us these fundamental Christ-like qualities. It happens to every one of us who knows Christ. It may take time, and it's painful and humiliating, but it happens. You are more like Christ today than you were this time last year, aren't you, Christian friend? Don't you love that in the church? You can see Jesus working on people in the church. I can look out in the audience and see the wonderful things that God has done in the lives of you folks. And it is a great encouragement to me and ought to be an encouragement to you. Look what God has done. We will consider others more important than ourselves next year than we do today. Um, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, back to Mark 10, if you will. And we'll end with this. <clears throat> this verse is considered to be the central or key verse of the gospel of Mark. This verse is also considered by many theologians and scholars to be the central verse of the Bible because it teaches exquisitely the gospel. It, it presents our Savior in clear terms. For even the Son of Man, and who is that? Jesus. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why would he have to give himself as a ransom? Because in our sin, 
we produced a debt that we could not pay. And God the Father holds a ransom note, and God the Son, Jesus Christ our Savior, the perfect humble servant, paid the price for that ransom note. For this, even the Son of Man, look at the words, all the words, for even. Listen, if the supreme being of the universe is humbly serving us, we ought to be able to do something like that. <laughs> We're not in that category. We're not close to being the supreme being, even of the, on, the only pew we're in, all right? The supreme being of the universe was able to humble himself for the sake of others. For even the Son of Man, the God of the universe, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Oh, man. We could talk a while about that, but we won't. We're getting close to the end. But this statement, is, isn't it central to all of our doctrine? It is, isn't it? It is. Jesus' death was not just another death in the history of deaths. His death was much more than just another martyr of a holy man. It was a profound, I mean profound payment of a ransom note held by God for our debt, for our sin. And sometimes, you know, we, we know what to do, but we're unwilling to do it because we don't have time, because we don't have the money, because we don't have the interest, whatever. Use some excuse. But not so with Jesus. Seems like in every, every case, every situation, he is the perfect example of humble, selfless servanthood who is always looking out for our good. Always. So what path are you on this morning as we wrap this up? Are you on the world's path to greatness or on God's path to greatness? <clears throat> Which is a better path? And you may say, well, I'm not interested in being great. That's fine, but do you want to be most useful in God's hands? Let's say we'll give you you're not interested in being great. I think I've already addressed that, but let's, let's move a step past that. Are you interested in being useful in the hands of God? Do you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when you're standing before the judge? If your answer is yes to any of those, you're pursuing greatness. Because those, according to Jesus, those things are great in God's eyes. To be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, requires greatness on your part. Of course, only because of God's grace. To be useful in God's hands requires greatness, requires servanthood, requires humility. You are pursuing greatness one way or another. And my encouragement to you, dear friends, is to be pursuing it God's way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to be about your business, about your kingdom. We want to be loving and serving our fellow believers, our community. We want to be loving uh, those in our uh, oikos that need to know about you, those in our world that uh, have never heard the name of Christ or have rejected it up to this point. We want to be useful in your hands. We want to be great in your kingdom. Lord, thank you for this passage that the Holy Spirit will use to 
cement these things into our hearts. And we're going to give you all the praise and glory for anything that good that happens in us today. I pray this in your name. Amen.